podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast with MyDieselClaim.com. Today we have the greatest football anchorman of all time. We will find out about exits, reunions and proper football clubs. Surely you've crossed paths with Jeff Stellingpole. I have, and I can tell you that it's not easy running a live TV show for three hours, especially when there's chaos all around you and you're handling, <laughs> well, let's say characters, as Jeff Stelling does. Uncontrollable characters. Often. In the early days. Often. So I've done a bit of journalism with Jeff, but nothing like that. From your journalistic opinion, Paul, was it quite surprising how iconic that show became? Yes, if you pitched that show now, you'd have no chance. A load of ex-players watching TV, you watching them watch TV, <laughs> no chance. But it had, you know, what they call stickability. Yeah, it was about the characters, wasn't it? It was about the people. Yeah. Jeff, we should say that you have a Brighton and Hove Albion connection, but it's not yours, it's that of your son, isn't it? Tell us the story. Yeah, the, the black sheep of the Stelling family. <laughs> Whereas my oldest son loyally supports Hartlepool, you know, like his dad, somehow my middle son is a Brighton supporter. It's not somehow, you know, he went to the University of Sussex, of course. Hey, Presto, what is directly opposite the University of Sussex, but the Amex? Uh, He he started to go, he he used to support Arsenal, I thought he did. Um, (laughs) You know, and I, I never liked that, I never enjoyed the fact that he support Arsenal. I've got nothing against Arsenal, but, you know, you could never get a ticket for love no money. Anyway, he, he fell in love with Brighton and now he goes home and away religiously, just can't stop him. He's got, you know, it's Brighton collection of shirts on the wall, all framed in his bedroom at home when he's there. And uh, he, he is a fanatic. You must be pleased for him because he's kind of transcended Hartlepool, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, I keep trying to remind him that um, it's not so long ago that things were very different. In fact, 30 years ago, exactly, Hartlepool beat Brighton 2-0 and, uh, in the league. And at that stage, I thought, there's only one team going places here. <laughs> How wrong was I? <laughs> it's, it's funny you say that, though, because obviously both clubs were, were at a very similar level. I mean, it is quite incredible how one's turned out and how the other's turned out, isn't it? I mean... Well, don't rub it in, Glenn. I know, but you, you, <laughs> but you don't even... If somebody had sat us down and said, one of these two football clubs, they both play, play in blue and white, one sure. of these two are going to be a Premier League team in the Europa League, it's... You would have... I mean, it would have been a no-go, wouldn't it? Yeah, you. I mean, you couldn't believe it. You can't believe what's happened at this football club in, in recent seasons, you, you know, from being on the, the brink of extinction, you know, to playing the sort of sides they are playing now in Europe is just just astonishing. Not just playing them, but in some cases playing them off the park, you know, and, and in the league, going to Old Trafford, going to Manchester United, and not just winning, but winning comprehensively. And, and this is a team, you know, I remember coming to watch you know, Hartlepool-Brighton games, and we always thought we had a chance, That that's for sure, you know. Um... So the, the, the change in fortunes, and I know it doesn't, you don't need me to tell you what a brilliant job the owner's done and everything about the club. It, it's, it's the model, isn't it, that so many clubs are, must base themselves on now. Yeah, because for every, every Phoenix club like 
Brighton, there's a, there's, a, there's twenty that get stuck, aren't there? And and they're, they're just always in ashes. They're always in flames. Um, but what what's what's been Hartlepool's glory moment? Because correct me if I'm wrong here, Jeff, but I reckon the highest finishing position was forty seventh in the league system. So that's second in Paulie's the. Paulie's our guest. We've got. A I know, but I've got to I've got to soften him up. You see, the <laughs> second in the third division north, nineteen fifty six, fifty seven. Is that right? Yeah, that 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 might be right. Although. Um, I would say, obviously, we got the, the playoff final for a place in the championship 2004-2005. And I remember that playoff vividly. It was at Cardiff. We were playing Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, we'd beaten Sheffield Wednesday in the league two weeks before the end of the season. We had a striker called Adam Boyd, scored a hat-trick in an absolute monsoon. And we won 3-0. And we went to Cardiff, which was where the playoff final was, you know, in... in Pretty high spirits, really, even though Sheffield Wednesday fans would say, um, well, you've had a great season, you, know, you can just enjoy the day, but we, we're a big club. We deserve promotion. So, so that riled us up. And in fairness, they played us off the park in the first half, absolutely played us off the park. But early in the second half, we scored twice and we were leading 2-1 with six minutes to go when, and Paul Sturrock was their manager. And he's playing um, two, three, five, but he's got five forwards on. And, and our centre-half, Chris Westwood, brought one of them down, I can't remember who, inside the penalty area. And it was a penalty, I thought. Um, but the ball's gone, it was in the goalkeeper's hands. And he got a red card as well. And you just thought, it, it wasn't a clear goal-scoring opportunity. Anyway, long story short, we played extra time with, um, with 10 men. We lost 4-2, and that's the nearest we've ever been to the championship. Don't, fact, worry, don't worry, Sheffield wins aren't that much higher anymore. It was <laughs> absolutely. The, um, we, 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 Brighton fans are like this, and so we have had one or two moments of glory, including in the early nineties, we beat Crystal Palace in the FA Cup at our place. So, does that does that give you perspective, both in your work and your life? Do you think? Because a lot of people who support clubs at that level feel that they see the game more fully because they understand what it's really about. Because it's not really about eighty million pound strikers, is it? Some of it is, but there's a whole world of football mm. out there. That, that, that has nothing to do with the top end of the Premier League. So do you kind of appreciate and value the fact that you've always supported Hartlepool and that's been your club? Um, I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I value it. <laughs> Look, it's my hometown and I'm old enough, you know, to, to think that your hometown club, that's the club you support, uh, unless there's a really good reason not to, well, in our case, there is a really good reason not to, because we've been pretty awful for all of my lifetime. Um, but no, I, I think you can support one club, and, and that's my hometown club. But what it does do, it gives you a different perspective on the game, on players. You know, if I go to a Hartlepool game, not just me, if any fan goes to a Hartlepool game, you know, the players, when they come out at the end of the game, you know, will stand and chat. They'll pose for selfies. There's no issue. Fans feel as if they know the player. Whereas I don't think it's the real big Premier League clubs, if you like, that is the case because they can't get near them. You know, uh, uh, players, and I, I completely understand why, but players are protected and costed and, and, and fans find it harder to relate. And I think that's why, you know, within the lower leagues, for instance, um, I'll, I'll go to lots of games, lots of games. And I never get any stick from lower league football fans, you know, because they just perceive the game in a different way. You know, they perceive the players in a different way. 
Um, they feel part of it, whereas you don't always feel part of a big club. Still a community at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. Yeah. Heartbeat of the community. I know yeah. it's a cliche, but that's really the case. I, I think that's something that, that Brighton have, have, have tried their very best is to keep that access. And, and mm. when you take the emotion out of it and, and the trials and tribulations, at the end of the day, the football club is a representation of that local community. I don't think you can go too far away from that. And that's something with moving from the Wisteen where they had a lot of access, believe yeah. me, yes. to now the Amex, that's something that we've really tried to keep down here. Yeah, no, and and I get that. And I go through my boys' experiences uh, again, for instance, just little things, you know, when he's been up, up to Newcastle, for instance, supporting them in, you know, and be crashing down with, with rain. And he's, he's waiting for players afterwards. And players are actually physically getting off the team coach to come and pose for photographs and, and, and sign autographs and, and things like that. And I, little things, but yeah. so, so important, you know. And, and the stories he tells me suggest that that is the case with Brighton, that they still are in touch with their fans. And, I, and there are, there are, there's no question of clubs in the Premier League that are exactly like that yeah. uh, as well. You know, long may it continue. Journalistically, I mean, you, 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 you started right at the bottom, didn't you? You started, you worked your way up. So, I mean, I can identify with this. So, <laughs> Hartlepool Mail and, and yeah. Radio Tees, you learned your trade in an era, you were about 10 years before mm. me, I think. But do, do you miss those times? Because I do a little bit, you know, that, that, where you could talk to everybody and, yeah. and you know, there, was, there, was, there were no barriers. It was just, it was one, it was one world, wasn't it? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I miss a lot of the elements of that. And just to put it in, in sporting terms, for instance, um, my second job was in independent local radio. And uh, our team then, our main team was Middlesbrough, we were in the top flight. Now, there were no press officers, you know, there was nobody saying you can't talk to him. Um, so every Friday, the players would arrive at the ground. It was Ayrson Park then, not the Riverside. They would arrive at the ground to physically collect their wages. And I would be there waiting for them. <laughs> and as they came out, I would say, Graham, Graham Sooners, can, can I have a five minutes with you? Mm. And everybody would say yes to it. You know, if you wanted an interview with the manager, you rang the manager. You, know, you didn't go through yeah. anybody else. So you, you had that sort of human contact that you can't have these days, or, or, or so it seems. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I do miss that element of it. Just, I'll tell you a very, very brief funny story, though. To get into journalism at school, I was hopeless, okay? I was, I was hopeless at everything. My reports were shocking. Um, I went to a grammar school, and the only thing I was any good at was English. So I thought, the local paper... The Hartlepool Mail. They had you know, in, people used to call them the green and or the pink and you know football mails mm -hmm. that had the Saturday evening match reports in. Well, our football mail, our green and had a letters page in it, and the Star Letter won ten pounds. And I thought I'm good at English. I'll write a letter. So I wrote a letter, and there it was. First week Star Letter. Jeff Stelling wins ten pounds. Fantastic. A couple of weeks later, I did it again. £10 star letter. And this repeated itself pretty much right throughout <laughs> the season. And I thought, crikey, I'm good at this. I can be a journalist. Fantastic. My first job was at the Hartlepool Mail. I went straight up to the sports department. I introduced myself to the sports editor, a guy called Arthur Pickering, and said, Arthur, I'm Jeff Stelling. I'm the bloke who wrote all those star letters. And he said, you idiot. 
He said, they weren't just star letters. They were the only letters. He <laughs> said, so we wrote the rest ourselves to fill the paper. Did you get all the £10? Yeah, I did get the £10, yeah. <laughs> but I got it in journalism by default, really. Yeah. Yeah. Just just out of interest, obviously, I'm a different generation to you both. But you talked about access to the, to the players. Obviously, there wasn't a lot of journalists there, so so it would have been easier. Because if, if you opened that up to the players now, you'd have hundreds of journalists, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, you, you have to be practical. Uh, and I, I do understand that. But, um, you know, there are, are some clubs, not even journalists, there are some clubs that, you know, as far as fans are concerned... You know, well, the players got a back way, like hidden route, so that the fans can't get anywhere near them. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. You know, that's so wrong in this day and age. Okay, it, you know, fans pay their money to come to games. As we know, in this day and age, it's not the fans' money that is the most essential thing as far as football clubs are concerned because, uh, you know, the TV money, the media rights um, sort of dwarf the amount of money the fans put in. But you just have to pay them respect. I don't feel that's always the case. And as far as the journalists go, yeah, you, you can't have this wild bun fight, obviously, of journalists looking for interviews and things. And things have, have changed phenomenally, you know. In, in those days, when I was covering Middlesbrough, there'd be mm, maybe five or six journalists from the region oh. who would, would cover the team, you know. So, um, And that was a top-flight club at the time? They were a top-flight club, yeah. yeah. I mean, Sir Alex Ferguson always used to say that he... Um, he was fine with the press in the days when he knew everybody, mm. when, there, when there were 15 guys, mostly men, we have to admit, in the room. But when it became 80, he felt like he'd lost control of the situation. He didn't know, didn't know yeah. who everybody was. And that's when he started to become more defensive and more hostile in a way because he didn't feel in control of the situation anymore. And we have to be realistic and say that press boxes now, they're, they're, they're rammed, aren't they? Oh. And, and so I can understand the players and the managers thinking, well, maybe not, you know, because I don't know who these people are yeah. and, and where they're from. Sort of thing. I mean, you, you'll have experienced, Paul, in the, the days of, you know, Terry Venables, for instance, mm. in his management days. And Terry would do the press conference. But then afterwards, he would take a small number of journalists away into one corner. Yeah. People that he trusted, you know, and... and he would he would give them the you know the A to Z, mm. um, whereas the rest of us we would just get a, a small taster of it. But I, I do understand that you know because um, you know trust is a two way street, isn't it? And you say a word out of place, it can be misconstrued. And mm. you know, look, don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously, I am a journalist by trade, so um, you know. I, I want to see access to, to managers, more access to managers, more access to players. But I appreciate there are a lot of difficulties. When you were a TV and newspaper man, mm. did, did you conceive of a spectacular TV career? Did, or did it, did it happen by accident? Or Yeah, no, I, I never had any ambitions to be on TV. You know, I'd always wanted to be a written journalist. I didn't even want to be a sports journalist, actually. I, I started my first job was as a news journalist, you know, so we would do all the local stuff, whether it be, you know, council meetings, magistrates court, crown court, we had a crown court on our doorstep. And and I loved that side of it. Um, and it wasn't until I went to local radio that uh, I got an opportunity to, by pure fluke, actually, um, the, the local Middlesbrough reporter had been taken ill. So on the Saturday morning, I was sent to do Leeds against Middlesbrough, which was a big local derby, top division in those days. And I'd never been on the air even at that stage. I, it was the first week I'd been there. So I, I, I did that game, didn't think I did it particularly well. But um, on the Monday, I went back into the office and um, 
my boss was waiting for me and said, uh, you're not a news reporter anymore. He said, you're a sports reporter. Is that okay? I remember the game actually as well, because younger uh, fans probably won't remember. Uh, but I looked at the Leeds United team. Oh my goodness. What a team it was at that time. You know, that Eddie and Frank Gray, Tony Curry had just joined them. That uh, Trevor Cherry, uh, Paul Reaney. Funnily enough, I was with Paul Reaney and Eddie Gray a week or so ago. Paul Reaney, you know, he, he looks like James Milner. You know, he, he looks like he could play forever. Mm, I mean, he's, yeah. he's 80, going on 81, and he looks fitter now than he did when he was playing. It's absolutely staggering, Good you God. know, so... Um, which is great to see, because obviously we've lost yeah. a lot of great players recently. You, yeah. you, you mentioned there you had no aspirations to get in the TV, mm. but you ended up being probably more famous than most Premier League football players. <laughs> no, no, well, I don't no, think that, so. <laughs> well, you, you, I think you did, honestly, because obviously people are obsessed with their own team, mm. but only only a certain number of Premier League players transcend the whole league, if you know what I mean. But the reason I ask you that is because my family were wanting Dubai and you were in the hotel. I wasn't there, you were in the hotel and my son couldn't believe that you were there. And I was <laughs> like, go and have a word with him, but he, he, he wouldn't come. But... The reach that obviously Sky mm. gave you and Gillette Soccer Saturday gave you, how did that sit with you? Because it just put you on a different platform, didn't it? It sort of crept up on me, really, Glenn, to be honest, because um, when this show was suggested, you know, a, a football show with no football, just a bunch of blokes talking about what you can't see, you know, it didn't didn't sound automatically like it was going to be a winner. It almost sounds like YouTube you've just described. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was a tough pitch, that one. Yeah. Yeah, for an idea. So, um, but it was an opportunity for me. And in the first, I don't know how many years, a lot of years, if it got a mention in, in the media, it was, it was mainly due to Rodney Marsh who'd been brought in to have that sort of shock-chock effect, if you like. And it was always referred to as a cult programme. Okay, which to me meant not many people watched it. Um, so there was a lot of anonymity there. And, and then suddenly, I don't know, after seven, eight, nine years, something like that, it, it just seemed to explode. I think a lot of it down to the boys who were on it, you know, that Paul Merson and Matt Leticia, Phil Thompson, Charlie Nicholas, you know, we, we had a lot of fun because I always thought that, yes, yeah, sports is serious business, but you know what? It's, it's entertainment as well. And this is a six hours long show. And if we're all going to be serious for six hours, you know, people are going to be turning off in their droves. So we wanted to make it fun. We wanted to reflect the football and the controversies, but laugh at the same time. And that, that just seemed to change things. And then the media started taking interest. You know, I got more recognised and um, yeah, my life changed really, you know, to be brutally honest. So For the better? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I was offered a job at um, ITV Sport, hosting their football. This is the time they had a lot of a lot of football. And I agreed to take it and, and shook hands. I'm not proud of it. I shook hands with the then head of football at ITV, a guy called Mark Sharman. And I went back to my boss, who was then Vic Wagling, late Vic Wagling, and um, I had my resignation in. So there you go, Vic. So I'm resigning. I said, I'm going to ITV Sport. I said, they're paying me more than you could ever pay me. And um, he asked me how much, and I told him. And he got a piece of paper out, and he wrote a figure down on and threw it across me. And he said, I can pay you that much. Whoa. And it was literally three times what I'd been earning 
And he then apologised and said, I'm so sorry for what we've been paying you. He <laughs> I've, said, I've used that trick many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry for what we've been paying you, but this is what we'll pay you if, if you'll stay. And um, I stayed because I loved the place. You know, I loved the show. And, and it, it set my family up, you know, and I sound like a footballer now, don't I? Yeah, I sound <laughs> like somebody's off to Saudi Arabia, you know? It, it meant I set my family up and, and I never regretted it. I definitely did not regret it. It was always the right thing for me was to stay at Sky. Yeah, I mean, you made it look easy, but that I could see that that's not an easy anchorman job, really, controlling those characters and those personalities and not controlling what they say, but just, I mean, were you anxious? They were all very professional, actually, weren't they? They got mm. the hang of it and they, they, they were obviously coached and all the rest of it but were you anxious that any of them were going to say something stupid at any minute oh yeah oh, well obviously <laughs> every minute you know and, 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 and as for being coached ask glenn how much coaching did you get when you went into the sky none none at all that's true yeah. it's so true yeah you sit down in front of a microphone and yeah, the, yeah. the titles run and, and that's it yeah off you, start off you talking. go yeah. you start talking but yeah but the big thing was it was live tv you know so if somebody said something something daft we just had fun with it mm. you you know it's not like um a pre-recorded show somebody says something daft stop start again you know it, it wasn't like that and we reveled in the daft things if you like that people said you know that's why at the end of every season and christmas there'd always be saturday funnies which were principally made up you know of, of, of blunders during the course of the season mm. um so, no, I mean, I, I loved that, you know. I loved the fact that, that Paul Merson couldn't pronounce anything, you know, during the, the, the course of the season. Um, and, and we made the most of that. We made a, an asset out of, you know, a positive up something that was a negative mm. with, with Merce in that sense, you know. And it was just great as, fun. As far as you, obviously, it was, you were on for 30 years, long yeah. time. Did social media change it at all? Because it obviously came in during that time, and and you talk about sort of the the win the Christmas things mm. where you got the funnies out and things. Yeah, yeah. But all of a sudden, there are all the time in memes, aren't they, on social media? Did yeah. it change you guys at all? And, no, I don't think it. Did. Well, it actually initially, from from my point of view, it was helpful. Um, it, certainly, initially, it was really helpful because you know I could follow follow fans of of certain clubs, you know, and I would get their perspective on what was happening. Not necessarily the correct perspective, but <laughs> get their perspective on what was happening at their club and what the issues were around their clubs. So you know, I, I, on on Twitter, you know, um, or X as we've got to call it these days, you know. On, on Twitter, it would be it would be a really useful tool, uh, and also during the course of the program, you know, a lot if there's a particularly dramatic game going on, I would go on a, you know whichever football club's Twitter page it was to find out what was happening, and so so that was that was really useful. Um, I don't think it did change things; it, it just helped us in terms of exposure. Yeah, because if there was something that was you know had gone wrong, a blooper. You know, then it was out there on social media within moments, really, um, which hopefully would encourage people to turn on rather than turn off. But a 20-year-old with a smartphone, in theory, mm. doesn't need to be watching a show of, no. of people watching TV and telling them what's happened, do they? So well, I guess, they kind of do because they do it all the time with YouTube. <laughs> That's I, their yeah, life. I guess so, yeah. So, so you think this, the show still has legs? Do you think it's as viable as it was in its golden age? I think one of the difficulties is there aren't so many three o'clock kickoffs anymore. Mm. Certainly in the top flight, there aren't as many three o'clock kickoffs. 
not as many in the championship, you know, with the new deal either. So those are both clearly issues. Has it got legs? Yeah, I think it's got legs because um, if, if you just want the results, you just want the scores, of course you can get them elsewhere. You know, a million places you can get them now. But if you want them presented up as part of a, a sports stroke entertainment show, mm. then that's different, I think, you know, and, and that's certainly what I always try to do, as I say, trying to make it entertaining uh, as as well as being about um, about sport. They, I mean, one of the biggest issues within lots of forms of branches of the media, but within TV and, and sport in particular, is the desire for um, the youthful audience, the quest, the quest for youth, you know, um, which I look upon as a completely different way to most of the people who are in management in, in TV. I don't think that whatever you do, you know, if you dress your presenters casually, if you make them, you know, YouTubers, whatever, I don't think that's going to attract a, a young audience because they've got a million other things to be doing. They've got a million other ways to entertain themselves. So my view has always been keep on making a really good quality product that appeals to their mums and dads who might now be 40, 41, 42. And when they get, when the youth get to be 40, 41, 42, they will hopefully follow in their mums and dads' footsteps and watch that product as long as it is still a quality product. But it's um, perceived as a bit of an old-fashioned view, I think. And no, nobody's going that way. Every single TV channel you know, is, is searching for that, that youthful audience. So you left, or you're leaving mm. in the end. Mm. Um, it ran its course for you. Uh, you. You're far from finished. You've got the, uh, a new talk sport show starting with Ali McCoy's. Mm -hmm. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. Check if you are eligible for significant compensation for free at mydieselclaim.com. You talk, obviously, glowingly and emotionally about your, your former colleagues. I suppose the question is, could you ever get the band back together? <laughs> well, we did a series of theatre shows, the, the five of us, um, all over the country, really, and Scotland, Wales, the, the lot. And that was a lot of fun. Could we ever get them back together? No, I don't think so. I think that's gone now. And, you know, whilst I regretted them, them leaving, you have to let go. Um, you know, Charlie Charlie Nicholas has got um, a lot of other interests now, <laughs> a lot of other business interests. You know, so I don't think he'd ever be tempted back. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I think um, I think that there won't be a comeback this time. Uh, you haven't lost your appetite, obviously, because if you're signing up for a breakfast show mm. at your age, I mean, what are you, sixty-eight now? Yeah, you don't mind the early start. I'll tell you that later. Um, well, it's only two days a week, you know. Oh, I you think can I can cope that. with it Mondays and, and Tuesdays. And obviously, Ali McCoy, as you mentioned, Ali is such a, a good guy, so vibrant, so funny, you know, um, that, that I'm, I'm taking the view that once I've got out of bed, which I accept will not be easy, <laughs> you know, the next four hours will be a sort of early morning party. You know, that, that's what I'm hoping anyway. But um, no, look, I haven't lost my appetite for it. You, you know, um, I'm going to be doing some football in December as well. So, so that's nice. And then we've got theatre tour in January and February with, with Bianca Westwood, who is another of those who's lost her place at, at Sky. Um, so, 
lots and lots to do, you know. Just been away with Chris Kamara on the world's most dangerous roads. We did an episode for that series. I'm not sure they were dangerous before we got there, but once we got there, we made them dangerous, <laughs> that's for sure. So, you know, I'm finding it's a big wild world and there's um, a lot of enjoyment to be had. I guess if you climbed Kilimanjaro and ran eight London marathons, you can get up mm. a bit early in the morning for a couple of days a week, can't you? Yeah, although my wife will tell you, I am hopeless in the mornings. <laughs> I don't tell this to anybody at talk sport. I'm hopeless <laughs> in the mornings. And I was tempted to go to say, them, have you got a different show I could yeah. do, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, look, it's an alarm call. Scramble out of bed. And, and I'm, it, it's the same story as at Sky, really, isn't it? I'm going to be sitting there with friends talking about football and getting paid for it. You know, what it, a life. It must be brilliant to still be loved and wanted. Um, well, I hope I am. <laughs> Oh, you certainly yeah. are. Um, oh, it's a look. I've had a charmed life, and um, you know, when I go down the walk down the street, people will always shout out the same the same things. Unbelievable, Jeff! It's always <laughs> unbelievable, Jeff. Um, they all think they're the first one who's ever said it, of course. As well, and people want selfies and autographs, and but you know, the people are unfailingly nice. I, I can't remember ever being abused or people are just so nice and and um i've I've been very very fortunate in that respect so yeah so i am blessed that that that's still the situation and you know long may it long may it continue when they decide that i'm too doddering and too old to be on the radio or tv anymore then you know i think i'd have to take a step back but for now if if people are still enjoying it that's great there's always a return to countdown (laughs) <laughs> I see a tiny little story about that for uh, a Soccer Saturday Christmas special we used to take some kids teams and, and put a tournament on and the boys Merson tests and things like that. they would be the coaches and I would referee the games the end of the final uh, on one particular year it was down at Eastleigh Football Club actually uh, the end of the final one year we're presenting the medals and the captain of the losing side you know as I went up to him to put the medal around his neck he said do me a favour Jeff Stick the count down. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad you're still going strong. Thanks for coming in to speak to us, Jeff. Thanks, and all the best with the new Thanks, show. Paul. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you, Cheers. Jeff. Well, the bigger the show gets, the bigger the queue of guests to come on. We've had a great first few months. We've got Christmas specials lined up, and next year is going to be even bigger and better, I predict. Yes, it is. And I kind of feel like we're getting the hang of this now, Paul. And <laughs> I think we need to start going live with it. Let's take it around the country. And if there's anyone that you guys want us to get on the podcast, let us know on the club's social media or at podcast at brightonandhovealbion.com. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. Check if you are eligible for significant compensation for free at mydieselclaim.com. You know you have a son or daughter, Glenn, and you try to brainwash them, don't you, into following your football <laughs> club. And Jeff tried with his son, but it failed. His son now goes... Home and away with the Albion. He had no connection to Arsenal Football Club. He wasn't going to be a Hartlepool fan. I wanted him to be a supporter of a proper football club. And it's not just because I'm sitting here now, but Brighton is a proper football club. You know, being down at the bottom knows what it's like to have to, you know, kick and scramble their way up the divisions. Actually, have to kick and scramble just for survival. So I felt he was supporting a, 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 a proper football club. And... The prices were cheaper than they were at the Emirates. (laughs) 
This podcast is a VoiceWork Sport production for Brighton and Hove Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network.